0: That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
1: How bad are things in America right now, actually?
2: In which dimension, they're mostly really pretty good.
1: Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network, where I assess the musical theory of Russian opera with a long lineage of noble interview guests. No, that's not actually what I do. We do interviews here, and we have a fun one this week. Tyler Cowen is a economist at George Mason University, the author of Marginal Revolution, uh, which is one of the best blogs going anywhere. One of my favorite guests we've had on the show before. Interviewing Tyler is fun because what you do is you just come up with every possible question, you might want to hear somebody smart talk about, and then you try to ask them as fast as you can. So that's what I did last time. It's what I did this time. And I really enjoyed the result. I think you will too. As always, please send me your show feedback, as at Vox.com. Again, as at Vox.com. It is nice to know that people are actually out there listening. You should be checking out the other Vox Media Podcast Network podcasts. They are all great, particularly Today Explained. But with that said, here is Tyler. Tyler Cowen, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Ezra. So I'm going to begin on a point of personal privilege. So when this comes out, I'll be on book leave. You've written how many books? More than 15, but I forget the exact number. What is your advice for actually not just going on book leave, but writing a book?
2: My main advice is either A, write the book, or B, don't write the book. (laughs) That sounds trivial, but many more books are started than finished, which suggests, for one thing, a lot of people shouldn't even try to write books. But simply having a routine where writing something on the book occurs early in the morning, and if you do something every morning, Saturday, Sunday, Christmas Day, at the end of some time, you will have a book. I don't care how much you do each day, do it.
1: How much outlining do you do? How much do you know the whole structure of your book before you begin?
2: Uh, Very little, typically. Typically. You need one idea or something almost like a title, and then you just work around that and the rest of it evolves through your conversations and your thoughts. And it's hard for that to happen until you start writing. So if you have some excuse not to be writing, it's that. It's an excuse.
1: So the idea is not that you want to have the book fully mapped out. The The idea is that the book's map,
2: the book's structure will evolve as you're actually writing it. I do believe in human heterogeneity. Uh, I'm telling you what works for me. But I am suspicious of outlines. They just sound like excuses not to be writing. If you want to do an outline, do it after you've done a quarter of your writing. It will be a better outline.
1: You write with real extreme brevity. So is that hard for you when you do a book? I mean, you you have a quality where you'll have a five-sentence post on Marginal Revolution that could be a three-book series.
2: <laughs> I try to be informationally dense. Of course, uh, that's a virtue and a failing. But when you're informationally dense, if you're writing an 80,000-word book, there's going to be a lot of information in there, probably too much information. Uh, it's probably the biggest problem with my books from at least one point of view. I, I think
1: you prob- you read more books than anybody I know. So when you read, let's say, nonfiction books, and let's say books in right. the roughly politics, social sciences space, what do you think are the most common problems with them?
2: most books are at best articles and you can be done with them in a few minutes. You get the drift, you've seen it elsewhere, you read the excerpt in The Atlantic, wonderful, that's fine, but you know, why is it a book that I have to find a way to throw out at the end of the day? It seems wrong to me.
1: And what keeps a book from just being an article?
2: The book can have a a history. So a lot of books, say like on the First World War, they start in 1914 and they end in 1918 and they cover the years in between. And there's a sequence of events. Those are the easiest books to be good. Biography, you're born, you die, something happens in the middle. So as I get older, I read more and more books of that kind because you're not going to have that issue.
1: But let's say you're not writing a biography or a history.
2: <laughs> well, it gets back to my first As I piece said, of going advice, do back to the personal write per- the book, right?
1: <laughs> that was not your first piece of advice. Your first piece was just keep writing.
2: Okay, well, one of the, one of the two.
1: <laughs> but okay, so in, in books that don't have that quality, what do you think makes for the good ones?
2: There's a new book, uh, Birth of Eurasia, by Bruno Macase, who's from Portugal. And he did a kind of Tocquevillian journey through Eurasia the borderland between Europe and former Soviet Union. And it's both a travel narrative and each place. He has a fair amount of detailed knowledge of it. And he's continually bringing theoretical insight to bear on different countries and how to think about their role in the new world order. That's a wonderful book. It's maybe uh, my favorite book so far this year. And he's just marvelously synthetic from a bunch of different directions. But there's no single recipe. All right. It's I'm, precisely violating all the other recipes that makes it
1: good. <laughs> um, all right. I'm gonna move it through uh, I'm gonna violate also my normal conversation on the recipes here and just move through a lot of topics with you as we did the other time. But I wanted to talk about healthcare because sure. we've been talking about healthcare a lot in politics over the past year, two years, actually since um, Obama really. And I have become frustrated with the conversation.
2: Become what were you
1: before? Uh, I was I was optimistic that we were on a path of incremental change that was going to lead in a reasonable direction towards something significantly better. Okay, and I think that the incrementalism does not work when there is so little good faith in the system. That would be one that that would be one reason I'm less optimistic and more frustrated now.
2: Most political systems have small amounts of faith, and we're both spoiled by the recent experience of the 80s, the 90s, the technocracy of the Obama administration. So this isn't so much the new normal as the old normal, and I think the real question is the technological breakthroughs in medicine, are they actually coming? I don't pretend to know. Uh, I'm frustrated that they've taken so long, but there's still the possibility for a very good outcome.
1: Well, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a pin in the technological breakthroughs. What is the case for having private insurers?
2: Why should we have them? Probably soon enough we won't because of genomics. It will be possible to figure out what's your expected longevity or which illnesses you're going to get. And health insurance won't be like insurance anymore. You'll pay a price more or less equal to what you're going to spend. And the U.S. will in some awkward, ugly way probably evolve into a multiplicity of single payer systems. I understand that's a contradiction in terms to have multiple single-payer systems, but I think we'll do it.
1: But is there a reason we should have private insurers? But putting aside the the technological determinism question, do private insurance companies make something in the system better? Do they serve a purpose?
2: Well, look at prescription drugs. Uh, They were covered by private insurance companies before they were covered by government. They're arguably the most effective form of health care. So the private sector, on average, is more innovative. It doesn't mean it will always do better. But there are reasons. They may or may not be decisive reasons at a particular point in time. But
1: other countries, other single-payer countries, they have prescription drugs. They're covered by the government.
2: Sure, but the United States, because it has private insurance, it tolerates higher prices, it funds more R&D, it has a much bigger surrounding healthcare infrastructure, which often we curse, but it is responsible for a pretty big chunk of the world's healthcare innovation.
1: Here's something that I find confusing, actually, about the system. I would think, by this point, given the role that I believe insurers could play That there would be more examples of insurers that were really good at managing care, that were really offering a middle layer of services and interfaces and whatever else it might be that made it far superior as a customer experience and uh, as an outcomes measure to just, say, being on Medicare. And I've covered folks trying to do things in that space. Like Kaiser,
2: right? Why aren't there
1: more Kaisers? Kaiser's an interesting one. But one reason I think Kaiser is interesting is that that's an integrated system top to bottom. I think that when you look at Kaiser, it's actually almost an argument against insurers. What Kaiser did, the reason they're better than most insurers instead of just being a middleman, they – own the hospitals, they own the doctors, they own the nurses. I mean, it's all. It's it's like a single-payer system run by a private company, or I'm sorry, a socialized system run by a private company.
2: Perhaps our so-called original sin was turning our backs on managed care in the 90s, which did seem to lower costs. People hated it. Uh, that was a mistake. We probably should have kept on that track. But why don't you
1: think that there is a version of this that people like and seems to have better outcomes? I, I, I would think that I usually take it as for granted that the private sector is a whole lot better customer
2: service. And that, I don't think, has generally been true in healthcare. Cass Sunstein calls it the control premium, which is especially strong in America. We hate waiting in line. We like spending money when we want to. The idea that even a private company is managing us in that way and, and queuing us, even though overall we're better off because the premiums are lower, our real wages would be higher. We hate it. There's the American consumption experience. It's culturally embedded here. You try applying that to healthcare, it doesn't seem to work very well. What's the best healthcare system in the world, do you think? It depends how you evaluate it. If you can take all the American innovation for granted, and if you have a very high income, I don't know, maybe Switzerland, but places like Denmark, Netherlands are very good. But if you don't take American healthcare for granted and you're in, say, the top third, then it's the United States. So the question here... To, France, to, too, you would put in the top tier.
1: So to just unpack the, the idea, because you've brought it up a couple of times, of have taken our, our innovation for granted. There's an idea out there that, yes, America pays too much for its health care, or pays much more than other countries, other developed countries, wealthy developed countries do for its health care, but that we are, in doing that, funding pharmaceutical, device, etc., innovation that the rest of the world is free riding off of. Free
2: riding, not exactly, but we pay more than our share. I struggle with this argument
1: because one thing about this argument is that I could imagine seeing a proposal for a system built to create innovation, built to push a lot of money at innovative breakthroughs, etc. And yet I mostly see this argument used as a way of justifying something close to the status quo. And then the people who make this argument never seem to apply it against their own proposed cuts to, say, Medicaid or Medicare, or whatever it might be. And so on the one hand, I think there's some validity to it. And on the other hand, it, it does not seem to me that the system we have can be justified on, well, maybe some of the money sloshing around is inefficiently boosting
2: innovation. Well, that may be an argument against those people, but it may not be an argument against the status quo. It may depend on whether or not you have a nationalist perspective. So if our medical innovation benefits Denmark and China, uh, if you count Denmark and China, maybe we should quote-unquote overspend on Medicare for their sake. Uh, If you're more of a nationalist, which is in vogue these days... uh, then you might want to cut back and make this a better country because it's just not worth the price. I suspect that's the actual trade-off. And no one wants to talk about it in those terms because defenders of the expenditures don't want to invoke other countries. And the people who want to call for cuts, they also, for other reasons, want to make the argument that we're funding innovation for the whole world, yet without being consistently cosmopolitan.
1: What do you think about a prize system, not necessarily as a replacement for the patent system, but the idea that you would have quite a bit of money pushed into these prizes where if you came up with a drug or a treatment that did X, you would get two billion dollars and the treatment would have no patent on it, so it can be produced as a generic immediately.
2: Well, you could auction off the patents we handle now, right? That would in essence be the same. It'd be thing. very similar. Uh, I would experiment with that. It's difficult to pull off on a large scale. Because once you're taking away property rights to credibly keep on paying people what it's worth in social terms, I don't feel our government is up to that, especially now. But I absolutely would experiment in that direction, and it does make a good deal of logical sense.
1: I do wonder whether or not when we imagine alternative healthcare care structures, uh, one thing that we should be imagining is what if we spent a lot
2: less on coverage and a lot more on innovation? Sure. I would recommend this. But
1: what would it we're not look like? up
2: to it either. Uh, it may just be impossible to get there.
1: And, and this goes a little bit to the idea that what people want in healthcare is not just care, but it's comfort. That's right, a they feeling want, of control. And, and a feeling that if something happens, they're gonna be financially okay and that they will, not, they will not be put in a position where they have to say to themselves or to a loved one, we can't do what the doctor is saying we need to do.
2: And I'm sure you know some of the Medicaid results that having coverage may help your mental illness more than any other particular malady which is at least consistent with that.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, well, that's one of the things that I do think is interesting about. Uh, I have different views on the Medicaid results than than some of the interpreters on the right, but the speed with which it touches and and lifts self-reported mood, self-reported health, depression, things like that that, that was actually far beyond what I expected from those results.
2: And this is related to current debates over Facebook, driverless cars, People wanting to feel they can't be harmed in particular ways and being super sensitive to some kinds of harm, uh, not so caring about other kinds of harm. It's also related to why some people on the right have made political correctness such a priority.
1: How do you read the political correctness debate? If you were talking to somebody who was unfamiliar with it, how would you explain to them what the political correctness debate is?
2: I would tell them to go speak to that proverbial alien from Mars, Most of what's written on the debate bores me. In general, I don't like whiners. When people complain about PC in universities, to me, they sound like whiners. And furthermore, I would say my own situation at George Mason, I have plenty of freedom of speech. The school's always been great to me. We have, you know, A-plus ratings from external groups and so on. But that said, I spend a lot of time talking with other people who work in universities, administrators, typically Democrats or liberals, and I don't feel free to communicate who they are or what they say, uh, but it you know, may, frightens me deeply. I think uh, the left right now, especially Matt Iglesias, is very much underrating how bad the problem is. And I don't mean to be a whiner about that, but there's some way in which people really do hold back from saying what they think that is becoming systemic, and it's making American elites, American elites less productive and less innovative. So let me ask you a couple of questions
1: about this. So one is that When I try to think about this in terms of the long sweep of, say, 20th century, just 20th century campus politics, I think of, I mean, we used to have the Berkeley free speech movements, which was free speech being weaponized from a different direction, obviously. We had the sort of 80s postmodernism, you know, the so-called hoax, like there, there, there was a real fight about that. I went to UC Santa Cruz in the early aughts and that was a weird place. I I love it. I I love it very deeply. But one of the things that I wonder about this is whether we are really having some convulsion of political correctness and new boundaries on speech and you can't be who you want to be, or what we're having is a social media-fueled situation where the most extreme thing that happens on the most extreme campus that month becomes elevated to the top. And it settles into everybody's consciousness because it's being weaponized as an example. Then people have the availability bias, and then they way overestimate the situation as a all campuses as opposed to, well, this thing happened at Lewis and Clark.
2: But if extreme instances are weaponized, that is the same as having a big shutdown of freedom of speech, because it doesn't happen every month. It happens every day or maybe every even every three hours. So if you've said that most extreme thing and that gets used against you, uh, you don't have freedom of speech. You can't beat back the mob. But weaponized by whom, I think, is the interesting question. By people there. on social media, sure. That's a big reason why the PC movement is much stronger now than, say, three years ago.
1: I. I but, but what strikes me as always an odd dimension of this is what I see happening, at least partially. And oddly enough, I'm sympathetic to a lot of the concerns here, but I see people who know, know they specifically are going to be extremely controversial on campuses. Right. Making a point of going to the campuses where they're going to be controversial. Most of the campuses they go to, nothing happens. Then eventually something does happen. That gets talked about not by the left, but by the right. It gets written about by David Brooks and you know whoever else on the New York Times op-ed page. And then people on the right feel there's this huge boundary and they're under this constant threat. It's a weaponization against, a,
2: a, at some level, themselves. That to me is the uninteresting side of it. And I even think if a state university has to pay a hundred grand for security for evil person X to speak at their campus, I think they should have the right to say no, actually. In that sense, you could say I'm not an absolutist in free speech. Budget constraints matter. And if you spend that money protecting them speaking, it's money you can't spend on encouraging speech elsewhere. But the real problem, I think, is people in the center-left who when it comes to issues of race and gender, cannot really say anything and just clam up. And that space is taken over by people who have a kind of more emotional mob-based approach. And the real losers are administrators, center-left, Democrats who are faculty, liberals. You know, the right will quote-unquote do its thing. And in a way, uh, it's better for them if campuses are paralyzed in this way. So...
1: So wait, I I want to plot that model because I think that's interesting and worth talking about. So the idea here is that while the discourses that folks on the right are are being targeted, that actually because there is a some level of payoff to them of being seen as being attacked by be these mobs, payoff, it can be a huge right? payoff. Look at Jordan it, Peterson. Look at Jordan Peterson. So what you have is sort of, let's say, moderate liberals who are maybe uncomfortable with some of the, the parts of the harder sort of parts of the left – but do not in fact want to be at cross purposes with them and that they are the ones who are, there's a chilling effect on their speech. It's and not people ben like Shapiro. this
2: talk to me all the time. Mm-hmm. The, the world doesn't know how many cases of this there are, including people who lose jobs or lose promotions or cannot become administrators. Uh, and that's a Are messi- there a lot of
1: cases of people losing jobs? Absolutely,
2: absolutely. Can you, can you give me an example no, of one, I cannot. even if you can't say the <clears throat> names or specifics? I can't say anything. I would be violating confidences. But two years ago, I didn't think this and now it strikes me as a significant worry for academia. We're making academia weaker. Academia will for a long time be a generally left-leaning institution, and the left is eating its own, and the left being more brutal with other people on the left ultimately than on the right is what we're seeing yet again. And what kinds of things can't be said by that center left? I can't say them either. They're not things I believe, but when uh, issues come up concerning uh, sensitive topics, a lot of people just won't talk. So let me, um, to move this
1: maybe in a place where you can talk about it. One of the things that I wonder about in this conversation and that I myself have trouble weighing because my historical knowledge is only what it is, which is not great, <laughs> is we don't have a great language for battles over speech for what, not what one can say, but what one should say. We collapse very quickly into the idea of free speech, a constitutional idea. You can say all kinds of things that are terrible, but there are a lot of things that we agree it's good that one shouldn't say. I think that, you know, if somebody wanted to go to a campus and just begin shouting racial slurs, people are pretty comfortable with the idea that that person should not get an invite, should not be allowed to be a commencement speaker, et cetera. So then we have a fight right now, um, a couple of different fights about what things should be seen as racist, what should be seen as misogynistic, what should be seen as uh, transphobic, you know, go on down the list. And that these fights are, are, are real ones. And they are ones that happen and have happened all throughout American history. And somehow we do not have a like a language for just discussing, well, what kinds of things should and shouldn't we be encouraged to say, even though we all know on some level that the way our discourse works is that we do set boundaries on it, even though th- those boundaries are not constitutional. And so we're having a, a conversation that often feels to me very unproductive, where people are arguing about who is in favor of free speech when in fact everybody is arguing and making claims in whichever way they can weaponize them about just what the boundaries on the conversation should be, which is another way of having a an argument about
2: what the conversation and what the sort of power structures in American life should be. I agree there should be boundaries. And I also very much agree the upside to political correctness has really been significant for helping many people feel more comfortable. But that said, I still think that when, say other students or faculty members cross those boundaries and do something wrong, uh, they shouldn't be punished in the way they're being punished now.
1: Oh, this is so hard because you can't tell me how... I I, I feel like I follow this topic. And (laughs) I see a lot of people who get very upset about the idea of being Twitter mobbed. And I see a lot of people get upset about, you know, getting a lot of angry letters. And I think as a journalist who is constantly being Twitter mobbed, I'm not that sympathetic to it. I feel like that's a thing where people... One thing that is true in our society right now is more people end up getting treated like public figures than felt like public figures, and that that is a, a searing experience, but it is part of this weird technological cultural shift we're, we're undergoing. On the other hand, when you say people get fired, et cetera, if I were convinced that was a very widespread problem, I would feel differently.
2: I just I'm not convinced it is, which is a hard place to be in in this conversation. Keep in mind, you work for a company. Uh, which is all to your credit, so much of academic life works on the basis of what's the strongest objection to you? How strong is it? And if there's any doubt at all, we're not going to go ahead and make a commitment. It's very different from the so-called real world. And when you're in that other environment, uh, you will take many fewer chances. It's a big overall problem with academia. Put aside political correctness. It's not the main problem. The main problem is in their actual research. PC not being involved, academics don't take enough chances. And it's for the exact same reason. So this is kind of a minor appendage to the huge problem researchers don't take enough chances. It's not the biggest or most important way. Everyone focuses upon it because it relates to their politics and their whining and how their feelings got hurt or whatever. Uh, When you look at it in this bigger framework, it seems to me obviously true.
1: And so if I can extract from that, what you're saying is that The arguments we are reading about on Twitter that we're seeing brought up in national politicized media are relevant to and maybe reflective of something going on more behind the scenes, which is that people are losing jobs or finding themselves in a disadvantaged place because within their research, within their actual professional work, they're crossing boundaries that people are uncomfortable with them crossing and that the professional reprisal on that is more than people currently realize.
2: And more often than not, people are just not doing it. That's really been a big shift and it's totally invisible. And
1: what about the rise as an incentive structure? I feel like there's been a rise in the past couple of years of of a variety of academics who have a variety of political positioning. I'd say John Haidt, Steven Pinker, Jordan Peterson. You know, you can go down a list of these people uh, who have done phenomenally well by becoming seen as sort of champions of the other side of this argument, which is one reason I wonder how bad the reprisals are I mean even some of the people who I think have been seen as 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 really being on the receiving end of in some cases even violent campus treatment take a Charles Murray Christina Hoff summers has been the has been the target of very aggressive protests they have nevertheless I mean it's been great for notoriety they get defended you know their their name recognition goes up it's hard for me to see sometimes the cost that is being.
2: These are all people who, in essence, own equity. So, Pinker has a best-selling book. Peterson, also a best-selling book. But before that, he crowdfunded his salary on Patreon. Uh, I don't know exactly what any of these people make, but I'm pretty sure they're doing quite well. Most people in academia don't have upside equity. They get only the downside. So, the cases you know are exactly the people with equity, where there is a return to risk-taking, as with companies, right? Like Vox. You've taken risks at Vox. Not everyone is happy, but if the risks work, there's a a big return. And uh, academia needs more of a risk-taking mentality, but don't be misled by the people who have equity, most don't. What would give academia more of a risk-taking mentality? You know, I was just at a long discussion of this uh, for two days, and I thought it was surprisingly hard to come up with good solutions. I think we need to experiment with the tenure model much, much more. Collaboration with the private sector, do more of that. Read a person's best work and think about their overall public impact rather than counting research papers, citations, and looking at letters from their immediate peers. That's still important. I don't want to get rid of that but peer review itself needs to be shifted within the university to look at overall public impact and actually solving problems. But it's hard to make that operational.
1: I'm curious about the culture you come from very specifically. So the George Mason University Economics Department has a little bit of an Island of Misfit Toys quality to it. Yes. It is a collection of pretty unusual thinkers who I think have a quite outsized impact on the public debate. Um, you know, you and and Robin Hanson and Brian Kaplan and others I don't know that any of you follow the real traditional academic publishing model. and Nevertheless, it seems to me that you have a very thriving department that has a, a huge sort of influence in the way people think that is probably very attractive to a lot of students. What created that model and why is that model rare? Because given how many colleges are competing for mind share and how many colleges are competing for students, it would not seem to me to be so strange that more would try to follow, not necessarily in the same ideological direction, but looking to build the left version of GMU or the well, whatever is, version of GMU.
2: That's a very good point. This is proof, I think, colleges are not really competing for Mindshare. So all of us at George Mason, we've published a lot in well-known academic referee journals, but we do other things too. And those other things, blogging, being on social media, are trying to reach broader, but still super, super smart public audiences. Uh, Those have an upside that a lot of academia has been slow to see, and we've built a culture where that is rewarded and encouraged. It's hard to build a whole culture that way when you're surrounded in a sea of people with a different orientation. Uh, I'm very happy that we've managed to do it, but it is striking how few other schools have gone the same route. But
1: what would you say were some of the decisions that made that happen. I mean, give, give me a little bit more on how you build a culture. Because building a culture is hard, but, but it is a distinct thing. And I'm sure it's been discussed internally, what are the ingredients of that culture?
2: When Alex Tabarrok and I started blogging at Marginal Revolution, which I think is 2003, and then a bit after I started writing for the New York Times, my colleagues thought, you know, what is this weird stuff? But then they began to see the kind of readers we get, the kind of response we get, interesting people we get to meet. Uh, the value of writing, you know, say, in a very good uh, media outlet. And people realized this was a complement to good ideas. It wasn't just some kind of crude popularization of something else that existed in a better form elsewhere. It was an actual creative form of its own, just as what you've done with WonkBlog and Vox is a creative form of its own and has been recognized as such. But within universities, if you want to be mobile across other schools, The main thing you do is get the best letters of recommendation from immediate peers, citations, impact indices, and say, writing a blog doesn't get you that, though it has many other advantages.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline, because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance— Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. we got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise So last time we spoke was after you'd brought out the book, The Complacent Class. And one of the theses of that book was that one way you knew that America was becoming a more complacent country was that ideologically we had become more narrow. That if you compared us to the 60s, to the 70s, that the range of things we were thinking about radicalism was in decline. Right. I think that there is more radicalism now um, I think it was probably happening when we spoke too, yes. but I, I think you can see it more clearly now. I think there's a real resurgent of genuine left thinking. Things like Jacobin, um, Elizabeth Brunig is writing about why we should, why it's time to try socialism in the Washington Post. I mean, you did not read that in the early 2000s. I think that you're seeing, uh, you know, this expansion of the alt right, and you know, we've mentioned Jordan right. Peterson and people like that. Are you enthused by this? What what feels to me like a quite
2: aggressive expansion of the boundaries of the debate. It's happening much more quickly than I had expected, which I suppose shouldn't have surprised me. Uh, It's more vital, but I also worry because you do need the center to hold when it comes to actual decisions. I think there's a good chance we will look back on this time as an era where America undid a lot of its complacency and boosted productivity growth again and managed to find a way to pay its bills, but that the whole thing was far, far more painful than we thought it was gonna be. That's my best guess. And both the upside and the downside will exceed our expectations.
1: And you're saying, when you say it'll end with us boosting our productivity growth, you're saying that the expansion of the debate will lead to more idea generation, that will lead to more economic activity. Do I am I extrapolating that right?
2: Ah, uh, yes. And also, you look say it now, all the hostility against the major tech companies. Uh, to me, it's also a sign they're having a really big impact on our lives. They're not just a marginal productivity boost, but a big one with some possible big downsides as well. But if it was just emailing each other back and forth, you know, people wouldn't have this hatred of Facebook that they do. So it's probably a sign, you know, we may be getting out of the great stagnation and that uh, this is part of that.
1: So let me push that on two two levels. One, I think that if 80,000 votes go the other way in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, we don't have a lot of this conversation.
2: I think today's world would still be quite chaotic and more partisan and ide- ideological, and all the figures you mentioned as evidence of radicalism—they would still be with us and have big audiences. So I don't view it as so Trump-centered. Well,
1: I might have taken. Longer. I'm actually speaking here about the tech backlash. Oh, okay. So I think I think Facebook and a lot of these platforms have a lot of problems. And I think that they are being scapegoated beyond what is reasonable for the 2016 election. That is one of my unpopular opinions. I think that um,
2: I agree. I'm with not you. even
1: saying that it's not true necessarily that Facebook, et cetera, were not part of why Trump won. Just when it's close, a lot of things can be part of why you won. But somehow they have become a villain that can be agreed upon. Whereas, say- The Girardian
2: ritual sacrifice, right? Yes.
1: Whereas, say, I would say the media's coverage of Hillary Clinton's emails was at least as uh, consequential, probably much more than anything Cambridge Analytica did. I agree. But the media does not want to undergo a searing self-examination on that question. Fully agree. And so I am not as sure that the attention with what's going on at Facebook and others is reflective of- well, actually they're playing a bigger role in our lives. In fact, I, I but keep think, in mind, that, I in think that we are Union, overestimating the role they
2: played. There's a big tech backlash in the European Union where there was not a Trump election of the same kind. And they have somewhat different reasons, but I think it's a very general phenomenon resulting from when something you can't obviously directly control plays a big part in your life, you rebel against
1: it. Well, and so this was going to be my second piece of it. So While I am not a fan of that – I don't want to say I'm not a fan because I sort of am. But while I'm not – I do not think that 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 part of the tech backlash is being kept proportionate to the role it played, even though I agree with that on many of the particulars. I think that the other part of the tech backlash is people feel that all this tech is playing a huge role in their lives and they can't seem to stop it, that – I feel this, and, you know, I think this is, I've had Tristan Harris on the show and Jerron and, and Lenier and, and, and others who talk about the addictive qualities of these things. And to your point about the great stagnation in economic productivity, I think that for a long time there was a feeling, well, if all this tech has changed the world so much, why aren't we seeing the economic statistics? And I think one possible answer is, it has overwhelmingly changed our lived experience of a day. I mean, I, I forget what the number is, but you will see these uh, studies that people check their phone 100 times a day doing almost nothing on any given check. And it's completely non-productive. And what it is is simply addicting, that the way to think about it is almost more like the economic analysis you would make of drugs than the economic analysis you would make of roads.
2: And that a lot of the backlash is to that. It's possible that checking at all is addictive, but I don't think any single web company or service is very addictive. And people make that confusion. So people You don't think Facebook is addictive? No, it's very easy not to do it. I don't do it, I have an account. Wait, but very easy not to do it and not addictive, are not the same. You don't do heroin either, but heroin is very addictive. Plenty of people do less Facebook all the time, millions every year, and they don't seem to have problems with it. They may go to something else. It may even be doing something else owned by the company Facebook, but they switch to Instagram uh, maybe they like it better or they do WhatsApp. So just liking something is different from it being addictive. I don't know. I, I want to push you on this. I think
1: that there is a... I agree with you that there's a suite of them, right? I, I agree with you that the way to think about the addictive quality is something in the catalytic interaction of your smartphone, which is always on you. Right. And then a set of different things, all of which are built to be addictive for different people, right? They're optimized for different people. Facebook may not be optimized for you, but maybe Twitter is well optimized for you. Instagram is well optimized for me. Um, That's the one that I tend to spend a lot of time on. And that, you know, other people love Candy Crush. And that it is within that whole thing, much in the way that, you know, there are a lot of different drugs and some people drink too much alcohol and some people smoke too many cigarettes and whatever. And That it is within that feeling that we're all just too plugged into this device and that the people making these things are more, they're always coming up and always a step ahead of our own self-control, that the backlash is coming.
2: But Facebook's a very vulnerable company. So many young people say, well... It's for older people, so somehow they didn't get addicted. I remember 10, 12 years ago, a lot of people told me, oh, I'm so addicted to reading blogs, I do it all day long. My RSS feed, it has, you know, <laughs> 200 blogs in it or 2,000. And now all of a sudden, not that many people are, are reading blogs. So addiction's a very rigorous term in some ways, and I just don't think any particular web service is very addictive, though I grant... Checking for anything at all maybe is for some people.
1: When I had Paul Krugman on this podcast, he said something that that struck me and that I've been thinking about since. And he said, because we're having a conversation related to this one about whether or not technology was leading to more productivity than we were measuring. And he said, look, we thought, or maybe we thought, that having all the world's information in your pocket would make you more productive. But it doesn't because more information is not how people make better decisions. And I'm curious what you think about that.
2: There's a lot to that. I mean, Paul himself is someone who has a lot more information at his disposal. Some of his best blog posts are much better than anything he could have written in the 1990s. But in some ways, the information he can get, it makes him more partisan, I would say more biased. And in some ways, you could argue it's lowered his productivity, even though he's reaching more readers. So I take that very seriously. Uh, But I don't think it's the more information that's the unmeasured gain from the web. It's that you hardly ever make mistakes buying things compared to a few decades ago. And that's pretty significant. You go buy music. You can almost always check it out in advance. So no more mistakes. That used to be maybe half of the sector was music buying mistakes. Ethnic restaurants. Someone can go to My Guide. They can go to Yelp the rate of mistakes there is very low. You know where to go. Someone can just email me, ask me. Uh, I don't know how big a gain that is, but people aren't looking there. And that's significant. And because there's something at stake, some other purchase, you have an incentive to get it right rather than just someone dumping information in your lap and requiring you to somehow process it in a new and better way. I want to think about this for a minute. How often do you buy things by mistake?
1: I think that's a different question than how often do I feel mistaken in the things I bought.
2: So you might just, make a category mistake like, oh, Ezra needs a new snowmobile this year. And that's a mistake because you should be writing your book. But you'll buy the best <laughs> snowmobile relative to the money you have to spend. So let me let me try to
1: let me, given that I've not thought about this idea much, I'm going to push on it without being confident in my counter arguments. Um, Number one, I think that I end up buying more stuff impulsively thinking that because it has five stars, it's going to make my life better. But I think a more radical critique of this would be that the kind of materialistic structure that we're talking about where people don't make mistakes on what to buy because they feel very confident what they're buying, it's just us buying a lot more crap that ultimately doesn't make us any happier. So how much of a welfare gain that really is – I think, is an open question. I'll give another version of that, which is restaurants. When I was young, right, when I was in college, let's say, I was in no way a foodie, right? I didn't know shit about food. Mm -hmm. When I went to restaurants that now I would think are not great restaurants, I was real happy about them. I was, I had a great time at the Cheesecake Factory. I remember there's a place I used to go with my girlfriend at the time. It was like on the wharf near Santa Cruz. It had a nice view. Like in retrospect, that was not good Italian food. But I was thrilled. And then my taste got better. And I'm eating like what might be better food. And I'm definitely no happier about it. So so what is what is my welfare gain there, really?
2: You're so praising of humanity today. I'm delighted to hear this. I think it's showing correctly that what people seek is not mostly happiness. They want to be happy at a certain level, but they aspire to be particular kinds of people. And this is a, a noble vision, itself-inspiring. So you wanted to be like a better Ezra. I want to be a better Tyler. The information helps us do that, having a different, and in some sense, more interesting kind of taste. And maybe it doesn't make me happy to write an ethnic dining guide, but I don't maximize happiness. So it's the most optimistic thing I've heard all week.
1: <laughs> so then the other the other version of this, I think, is one of the criticisms you hear of hyper-optimization. And I think that's a version of what you're talking about. We are much more optimized in our purchasing. Oh, you're looking for a restaurant that is in Fairfax, Virginia, that is Szechuan food. Well, you can find the best reviewed restaurant in Fairfax, Virginia, that is Szechuan food. Or, oh, I'm looking for a book on urban policy. I can find the best reviewed book on Amazon about urban policy. Uh, They compared, you, you will often hear the comparison made to when you read the paper. And you were not getting it served up to you what it thought you would like. But in fact, your eye would be caught by something that, you know, you didn't know you wanted to read about and it would spark an idea and that would be great. Or in music, Spotify Discover has a very, very specific view of who I am. And that is a person who likes extremely sad, ambient techno music. Just really, that is what I like. And it is true that that is one thing I like. Um, I like working to that kind of music. I have a lot of trouble telling the algorithm to see me as a fuller person than that.
2: You can and email so, me for a chipper music recommendation. Well, I, I, and I, I could. won't send you Mahler. But,
1: <laughs> but so the, the the question I'm asking there is whether or not that optimization has a loss in growing who we
2: are. Here's another general way to look at it. I think many people agree the internet subsidizes weirdness in some way, and niche tastes, and those can be very good or they can be very bad. But if you take like the normal Americans who hold this country together, and you ask, like in your heart of hearts, do you think most of those people are actually pretty weird? I do. And that means the internet is giving them a bigger subsidy than maybe it appeared at first. And there's gonna be collateral damage from that as there's been with the printing press, as there was from television. Uh, But there's an overall record of new communications technologies doing very wonderful things for us, the transitions being very bumpy and rocky. I think we're seeing it with the Internet. I think it's just gotten started. What we're talking about now is, in a sense, nothing compared to what's coming. It will be, People will look back at it and ignore it as not even counting.
1: Are you happy with how the Internet is evolving?
2: I think it is too soon to tell, uh, the famous Chinese proverb. I, still, I think there is an ongoing chance, which is not trivial, that the whole thing turns out to be a mistake but the expected value is very, very high. The returns from simply being able to access so much information and be matched better with other people and to have your weirdness be expressed and to have your identity, you know, people with sexual identities that are unusual, they figure them out earlier. For the most part, I think it's a much better life when that happens. That's an enormous gain, for instance. I think that's likely to outweigh the problems.
1: Did you read the piece the New York Times ran about the guy who had cut himself off from the news entirely?
2: I love that piece. I linked to it. Uh, I I giggled when I read it. What he had to do, he had to like barricade himself in this cabin in some part of the country I haven't been to for 20 years. Yes, I did. So I read that piece, and that— that was one of those pieces where I think the internet's
1: initial response to it was this is amazing trolling from the New York Times. I mean, I, I really think the New York Times is underrated as a trolling institution. I agree. They're very good at that.
2: Both left and right. Both too. left
1: and right. But I also thought the guy had a point when he said that I, I think that if he if they had not had the kicker on that piece, where he said, you know what, I've decided to put my time into restoring this old mine nearby into like a good marshland. And I'm like putting money and time and I'm making a difference in my local community. And I've decided that that is where I'm going to specialize and that it is absolutely not useful in any way for me to read political news. I, you know, as somebody who does political news and sometimes thinks people would be better off checking in every couple of months and just seeing if anything has changed. (laughs) uh, I had sympathy for that. It's not how I choose to live my life. And I don't think it would be good if a critical mass of people did. But I think that there is a tendency to hate on that, to see it as a, as a kind of privilege when, you know, one thing that worries me about the internet is a feeling that we all need to somehow be involved in everything, even though the way we are involved is not consequential. And even though that kind of involvement and that kind of distraction and that kind of attention takes our effort away from things where we could have a bigger impact in our communities, in our work, around our families, etc.
2: There's a kind of loneliness epidemic in America today, and a lot of the political reactions we see are a reflection of that. So if you're really involved in your own projects and volunteering and working with other people to get other things done, those experiences will be so vivid Politically, you won't overreact that much. You may care deeply. You may get very pissed off at certain things that happen, but it will be a pretty healthy balance. So there's a slowliness epidemic. And then you want to ask well, that epidemic, how much is it driven just by higher wealth? How much is it driven by some feature of what America is? How much is it driven by the internet itself? If you believe the latter, it's driven by the internet itself you'll arrive at a pretty pessimistic view of the Internet. But if you think it's driven by wealth and something about American culture, you might then think the Internet is helping us mend the loneliness epidemic by bringing us into contact with, you know, like-minded weirdos or something. And I suspect that's the case. You have people feeling less lonely at all sorts of fringes, again, not always with good results, and uh, there's also within the Internet the promise for curing a lot of our political overreaction by fixing the loneliness epidemic and bringing us more into the kinds of face-to-face contact that keep us involved in real human problems right in front of our eyes that bring out the best in us.
1: All right. I, so I'm optimistic I have today, strong, too. I strongly disagree with this, but I want to separate it into two parts. So, one, I do not see evidence, and I think there's some evidence to the contrary, that the Internet is curing the loneliness epidemic. I think no, I'm not it's saying it, it is. Okay. So so, 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 so give we don't me your know. give me your give me your take on this one more time because it seems to me that that's something we're learning about the internet and I'll speak to my own experience here. I do a fair amount of business travel and I don't like it. <laughs> and I am never more likely to turn to the internet than when I feel lonely. Um, Than when I'm not with my wife or my friends, I'm never more likely to go onto Instagram or something and 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 look for some simulacrum of connection, and I, I, I invariably feel worse. And I think that there's a way in which we have come up online with a lot of things that they like, if you explained them, you'd say, yes, that is a cure for loneliness. And then if you experience them, you wouldn't. It's like cotton. I don't love the analogy of cotton candy because I don't think the idea is these are empty calories, but there are certainly things you can eat where if you explained it to somebody, you'd be like, yes, that will keep people from starving. And then you give it to them to eat. It's like, well, actually I missed something (laughs) fundamental about what you want when you're eating. And, And that feels to me to be the internet
2: around loneliness. Most of the most interesting people I've met in the last 20 years, I've met through the internet, including you, including my wife, they're way more interesting than the people I met, say, the decade before that. So that's an enormous plus. You say you don't like business travel. Uh, I guess I do. But think what you're saying. You you do business travel because you have to do face-to-face. And these are not all evil people you're meeting. You're saying, well, face-to-face doesn't thrill me that much
1: you know? No, I'm saying that being alone in hotel rooms at night doesn't throw me that much.
2: Well, that's part of face-to-face though, right? It's actually a (laughs) bundle.
1: (laughs) It is actually a bundle. I take your point on that.
2: And uh, this ennobling side of the internet is something the internet can itself teach us. So you see threads on Twitter, how to use Twitter properly. I think it's quite possible that five years from now, uh, just as we've Come to terms, you know, with various foods in our diet. Not everyone has, but you know, obesity rates flattened out. Uh, we will come to terms with, say, the problems of Twitter and Facebook, and people will learn the better practices we I have in most might be other right.
1: areas. So, I read a a long Twitter thread. I'm worried I'm going to get this name guy's name wrong today. Um, but but you actually tweeted. I found it from you. So Michael Nielsen. Yes. Um, he works for Y Combinator, a brilliant man, he, highly
2: underrated, he, always worth reading.
1: And he wrote a Twitter thread about why he likes Twitter and how he uses it. That's right. And I'm somebody who has a lot of agita on my Twitter use because it's very political. And I read him and it's like, that's a much better way to use Twitter than I'm using it. Like the, the, that that's what I, I, I need to do <laughs> to actually curate this, not towards what I think I should be doing, but towards what will actually make me happier to do on it. I actually, one, one counter thought to my own intuition on this I do not know this for sure because I'm not that involved in the subculture. But it is my sense that online video games are a more in some ways too powerful cure for loneliness than we realize. And so we talk a lot about social media, but a lot of what people do on the internet is gaming, and um, they may
2: be a cure for the desire to work as well. Right? that's
1: yeah, that's the other problem. It can be it can be too addictive, but that, the relationships people seem to build on those things are often real. They they meet up in person. People, you know, b- develop romantic relationships there. But it also, it's like there's a sense of purpose. There's a sense of, you know, tasks and accomplishing things and teamwork. And and I do wonder, I mean, I think this is part of something Jerome Lunier believes, but as we move towards VR and other things, that there might be fuller human experiences that become
2: unlocked than where we're at now. I don't do online gaming. Partly it's an issue of time, but partly I'm skeptical of it. Keep in mind, you're in a very special position. You are professionally connected to politics in a way you really cannot avoid. I would say next time you're on one of these horribly oppressive face-to-face business trips, set up an alternative Twitter feed. Just try to follow like, you know, women's art Mm -hmm. or uh, like the history of Indonesia or something not political in the narrow sense. And use Twitter that way for the time of your trip and just see how it is.
1: So let me go to something else you were talking about. You you were saying how you think there could be some cure for our political overreaction, uh, that people will experience what it is like to to engage and that 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 will keep things in perspective. Something Iglesias talks about sometimes is the way in which the reaction that American liberals are having to Donald Trump is confusing if you think about the way many Austin liberals react to living under the Texas state government, right? That the Texas state government is in many ways more conservative than Donald Trump, that Texas is a much more conservative state than the United States is a conservative Correct. country, that the, the the disparity there is more dramatic. And yet people seem acculturated to it. If you went, when I went to Austin a couple of years ago, people were not obsessed with talking about how much they hated Greg Abbott. Right. Or Rick Perry or whoever it was back then. Why do you think that is? That's what makes me a little skeptical. One thing that I note is that people feel much more confronted by the national political conversation at all times in a way that is out of proportion to how they react to disparities between their politics and the politics under which they are governed in other facets of their life.
2: Again, we both live near Washington We spend most of our time dealing with people embedded in this. Most Americans are not so embedded in it at all. But it could be we'll return to the norms of late 19th century politics where things are much nastier and partisan. And you have a lot of unreliable decision makers in the presidency and truly bad things come from that. It would be worse today. A bigger government, nuclear weapons. I don't think we should view this as a trivial problem. But that said... Out of late 19th century American politics comes America's most wonderful cultural flowering and an age of great diversity and eventually the building of a moderate center and rise of the working class and so many good things. I'm not trying to suggest one thing caused the other, but our ability to really pinpoint macro trends and a president says a lot of jerky and offensive things and then think through some kind of chain of reasoning it has to lead to XYZ. I just don't buy that no matter what the person's claiming. How bad are things in America right now, actually? In which dimension? They're mostly really pretty good. That's my question. There is a intuition— There's more offensive rhetoric now than two years ago, and there are particular classes of people who genuinely and legitimately suffer from that, and we should treat those losses as real, not just scold the people and tell them, you know, get a firm grip on it. Though maybe a bit of that, too. But most other dimensions, and I don't just mean the cyclical, oh, the labor market's fine today, right? It might not be in two years. Uh, But in most dimensions, opioid use being a huge outlier, this country's never been better. So this is something that I've
1: been thinking about a lot. And, And here I'm not even just talking about the Twitter conversation. I've been reading a bunch of really interesting political science about democratic decline. Yes. and the you know I've how read, democracies die. I've some of these books too. People versus democracy. Um, Amy Chu is a political scientist, but Political Tribes is interesting. <laughs> and something I'm noticing in these books is that their diagnoses of where we are in many ways are very persuasive to me, but they very much seem to work off of a view of the past that strikes me as idealized. Exactly that. If I go back to 1950 or 1960 and think about what was happening, how much of a democracy America really was, how liberal in the classical sense America really was,
2: we seem much worse then than we are now. Or think about Eric Foner's book on Reconstruction, read that. And today then looks completely different. So one thing to do just to keep your sanity is to read a lot of books about the Reconstruction period and the late 19th century. I think uh, that's one of my advice, pieces of advice for listeners. But that that to me,
1: I think, raises a question. Why if... This period is not... I understand why people would not have a good intuitive view of how bad Reconstruction is. Because right. none of us were alive for Very Reconstruction. Distant. It's quite distant. How bad things were when my mother was young is not so far out of human memory... Correct. ...that we should not be able to think about it. How bad things were when... Kennedy and RFK and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X were all assassinated, and then Gerald Ford was shot at, and then Ronald Reagan was actually shot.
2: You're now into the territory of my own memory. Exactly. So I'm older than so you So This
1: is my question for you, and it's something that I'm struggling through and trying to write a piece on now, but... Why do we feel things are so much worse right now when within very living memory, within the last 30 or 40 years, including on many issues of inclusion and political rights and and, and so on, things were
2: measurably worse? We have the set point, and it's something like the beginning of the Reagan administration through 9-11, where so many things went well, and they went well in calming directions, and also crime fell, crime falling we don't talk about enough as a determinant of how we view the world. And so it just seemed we could push ourselves further and further into a corner where there just wasn't going to be that much harm, and we developed those expectations. And this is relevant for the political correctness debates. It's relevant to how people respond to Trump or over-respond. And it will take us a while to get out of that set point, but I believe it will happen in less than 10 years and we'll end up in something more like a late 19th century set point and we'll roll with the punches more. Not in every way a good thing. It is in some ways good to be so upset by noxious behavior, right? A late
1: 19th century set point, it's a, it's a real fallen set point.
2: Well, be careful what you call a fall, right? Because what follows that are some amazing years for America. And I don't just mean production of wealth, but that's when American culture really blossomed and it was extraordinarily dynamic. And we start producing some of the world's best writers and musicians, so,
1: do you think Donald Trump will be reelected in 2020 if he runs? I would bet against it,
2: but the chance is higher than many people believe.
1: What, in your view, would Democrats do if they were wise to keep that from happening?
2: Not complain about everything that's happening and nominate a fairly boring candidate as they did in Pennsylvania and not attack Trump too much for too many different things and tie him too much to the Russians. Uh, Talk about solid economic issues where the Democrats have good ideas and appear constructive and realize most of America doesn't live in their bubble.
1: Are there boring Democrats who you think the party should be looking at as national standard bears?
2: Uh, precisely because they're boring, I don't look at them. Uh, but, but I hope there are. I mean, Bernie Sanders isn't boring, no matter what you think of him, so don't nominate him. Uh... The better known people tend not to be boring at the moment, precisely because of the age we're in. So I worry about that nominating process.
1: When histories of this era are written, what do you think historians will You're talk about? You're writing
2: them right now, every day at Vox. But so I,
1: I, I disagree on that, actually. I think that if you go back and you read contemporaneous political accounts of a lot of periods in politics, you end up with a lot of like, Congress is debating a tariff bill that we have totally forgotten. When histories of this period are written, what do you think will be emphasized or recast that we are not paying that much attention to now?
2: Underlying progress in information technology and biomedicine, which are hardly obscure topics, but they're not dominating the front pages the way politics is. And I think also uh, gender issues, the problems uh, some men are having in society— you see this in the new Chetty paper about the difference in outcomes for black men and black women. Yeah,
1: that paper is very disturbing. Very
2: scary, but also for, for some class of white men, you see something similar. And again, this is hardly an unknown topic, but I think talking about this should be something much, much bigger. And academia is not up to it because of our discussion earlier about political correctness.
1: What's your interpretation of why Chetty at all found what they did on that paper? And, and just for folks who haven't heard it, what they found in that was it— Even an an African-American child born into a very wealthy African-American family had less chance of ending up wealthy than a white child born into a significantly less wealthy family.
2: But keep in mind the gender distinction. So black girls born into well-off black families do fine in terms of subsequent mobility. The whole problem is in black males. That's what I take to be the most interesting result. what was your... Uh, that a guaranteed annual income won't solve a lot of our problems, that class, as is narrowly cited, is not the, the central thing. It's not even race with a capital R, but it's about a cultural intersectionality, if I may borrow that word, between race and class, but above all, it's culture, 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 and our failing to address gender issues from the increasing feminization of society. And there are whole groups of people that is bad for, and we don't know how to handle it. If you were... It's also strong evidence against all these genetic claims and views, I might add. Explain that a little bit more. Well, you hear in some parts of the alt-right that there's something genetically different about different groups of people. Uh, If that were the case, you wouldn't expect the results for black women and black men to be so different. You might think, well, genetically, something's passed down to black men, not to black women, but for white people, and it's not the same. That's highly unlikely. All these results point us so strongly in the direction of culture and not race or class taken on its own. What changes a culture
1: in, in that way? I don't want to ask that question quite so broadly, but when you're thinking about this part of it, what the, the culture around how young black men are treated and what they think of for themselves, what, what are the levers that a society has available to itself to try to make progress on that?
2: So much of it are things we can't control. I think that's one thing we learned from history. So relations between the sexes were so much changed by both the advent of abortion being more readily available and the birth control pill. Now, you can control those in the sense, yes, you can ban them, but within reasonable parameters, it seemed those things really were going to happen. And uh, a lot of the rest is a playing out of that. And then we're just not able to make adjustments in, in norms To cope with uh, resulting problems. So I think what's striking to me looking at history is how much you can't control. And you talked before about the sweep of history. When you look back, I so often think contemporaneous accounts are better or more insightful than how something is viewed 60 years later. That's so often through the lens of a different time. And if you go back and just like read Life magazine from 1953, it's fascinating. They see so many things about 1953 that we don't. Yeah, that's a fair point. Is America a racist country? Uh, Probably, but what do you mean by the word?
1: I mean that is America still a country where the way the culture is constructed and the way the structures of power are constructed, if you're born African American in this country, that through no fault of your own, you are likely to have significantly worse life outcomes. That's
2: correct. I remember something very striking. There was once a poll of white people and they just asked them, well, if you would have been born with the same level of parental income, but you would have been born a black person, like how much would we have to pay you for you to feel compensated, you know, for that happening to you? And the numbers are very high. And, oh, it's a survey, you know, maybe the real number would be different or... But still, I find that striking. And then you ask these same people, is America a racist country? It's like, oh, no, not of course. Like, I'm not prejudiced. My friends friends aren't prejudiced, which... Well, that might be true, but racism is a broader thing than just people sitting around being ornery and prejudiced and using ethnic slurs.
1: Well, a majority of of
2: whites say that discrimination against whites is now a bigger problem than discrimination against blacks. I haven't seen that poll. Uh, There may be discrimination on a kind of class or education basis, which those whites call discrimination against whites. But I doubt if it's really discrimination against whites as the thing going on. Something I've been doing some work on
1: recently is the racial wealth gap and tracking it and, and seeing how it's changed and, and trying to understand why it looks the way it does. Do you think this country has any chance of significantly closing the racial wealth gap over the next 50
2: years? 50 is a long time. Uh, over the next 20 years, I would say no. And past that, simply be agnostic, but skeptical also. I think the higher living standards get, the easier it becomes not to really address certain problems. It's a kind of curse of prosperity. When
1: so the racial wealth gap and I'm going to get the numbers slightly wrong from memory here, but I think it's that the average white family is 170,000 in assets and the average African American family is something in the range of 17,000. When you hear those numbers, what do you hear in them? What is your explanation of the racial wealth gap?
2: That there are barriers uh, on the income side and education side, there are big issues but also just access to equity markets in cultural terms. The idea, well, African-Americans should be buying more homes. I'm not sure the rate of return there is that high. Uh, I think more in terms of the equity premium and that on average 7% a year, but you need a cushion of wealth to do it because a lot of times equities don't go up for you know, 17, 18-year periods. That's why it's very hard to get out of. If you had 50 years running straight, Uh, where African-Americans were earning equity rates of return on their wealth. uh, That would work wonders, but it's hard to get into that corner.
1: Have you read The Color of Money?
2: The Color of Money? Who wrote it? Uh, I think that means I haven't read it. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's a very good book all about the disparate access to credit markets, which I, I think is, it's interesting you bring that up, because when I read that book, that felt to me like, a big piece of the story you don't hear. You hear about housing and housing is obviously part of that. But this is a story of differences in banking, differences in credit markets. And and it's interesting that, you know, one of the points she makes in that book is that there has continuously been a dynamic in in the African-American community where money gets put into institutions that then funnel the money out into white communities where there is a higher rate of return. Uh, So unlike say, white communities where the money is getting invested and then pumped into the community and everybody is getting richer, that their African-Americans have generally been put into institutions that are saving savings institutions rather than wealth-building institutions, and that also what the institutions are doing is investing in white areas where the rates of return were better, where the risk was lower, even when it is black money that is being
2: invested. I would stress equity more than credit. Credit is a mixed blessing, of course. Mm -hmm. And if you think the expected rate of return on home ownership is not as high as people sometimes seem to think, then simply having people get more mortgages, you make them less diversified, more vulnerable. If black households had earned more equity and less housing, say, before the crash, they'd be much, much better off. So I guess my my take on it would be in this other equity-based direction.
1: Hillary Clinton gave some comments now a couple of weeks ago, where she said that if you looked at it economically, the areas that voted for her were responsible for something in the range of 65% of GDP growth in the country. It was forward-looking, diverse, optimistic areas. Areas that voted for Trump were backwards-looking, You know, not producing as much economically. These comments, I think, have, have rightfully been uh, criticized for... Her whole comments, as usual, are a little bit better than this, but the, these comments, I think, have rightfully been criticized uh, for maybe not being the most gentle way to talk about this, but what they reflect is an urban rural divide that is both politically deeper and economically deeper than it used to be. And if that keeps widening, that feels to me like a genuine form of instability in a country where our political institutions are constructed to amplify rural power. I'm curious how you think of the, the urban rural economic divide right now.
2: I feel we're building another divide, so keep in mind, a lot of entrepreneurs voted for Trump, as far as we can tell, a lot of well-off people, people you might call dynamic. So you can slice and dice the data by region, as Hillary Clinton did, but that doesn't seem like the deepest look at the data. If you do it by individuals, uh, you have to infer from exit polls, but it seems a lot of entrepreneurs vote Republican, right? You're talking about small business owners, things like that? Or just wealthy people in areas like finance. Uh, And more of them, I think, voted for Trump than were willing to admit it. So, you know, the urban-rural divide, rural America is disappearing. They may still hold seats in the Senate, but that war will at some point be over because there's partisanship, some kind of connected ideology is being taken up by non-leftists outside of rural areas. And I think exactly what we're seeing now is that it's no longer just an urban-rural divide, And media is missing that story. They're always sending people out to West Virginia or somewhere to write about the hillbilly elegy. I mean, that's important. It's a good thing we discovered that in J.D. Vance's book. But at the same time, the ease at which people on the right who have nothing to do with that have picked up the memes is the real thing going on. And I'm sure you see this in Republican Party politics. Is like Paul Ryan, you know, hillbilly elegy? I don't think so.
1: Well, this is a weird thing to me about Hillbilly Elegy, and, and I had J.D. Vance on the show and we talked about it. I don't think you could find a book that is actually in some ways less descriptive of the election than Hillbilly Elegy. I think that I, I both like that book quite a bit, and I think if you read it, far from it being a book about... These areas have just been forgotten. They need more attentive politicians and more sympathy. Hillbilly elegy is in some ways a condemnation of them. And I've been very struck by the way it's become a shorthand for sympathy for the white working class when what I think Vance was in many ways doing was offering an argument about cultural pathology in the white working class that traditionally in American politics has been coded as a way to withhold sympathy. I think the way that book has ended up playing politically is very, very... Well, speaks to me of a lot of people not really reading it.
2: I don't speak for Vance, but I view the book as him trying to come to terms with his own life. Like, why am I not so pathological? And it's very much a memoir, cloaked as being some other things, but ultimately... A memoir, most of all, and not really a book about the, the election. Maybe that's a similar take but, as yours. But,
1: yeah, but I agree with that 100%. That's why I mean that when Mitch McConnell and Rob Portman say that Hillbilly L.G." is a book everybody needs to read about the election. I mean, Hillbilly L.G." has become, in addition to a memoir of J.D. Vance's life, it's become a political artifact. The Republican Party worked hard to recruit Vance to run for Senate in Ohio this year. What was just striking to me was what was revealed in Hillbilly Elegy and what the book came to stand in for in our politics struck me as very, as very different.
2: I wonder if the forthcoming political gap isn't really about gender most of all. And Trump, he's so, there's so much sexual dimorphism there, how he pretends to act, kind of wife he has, where he appoints all these classic white males to positions. Uh, The one... Issue where you really cannot bridge the gap with Repub- a lot of Republicans, a lot of Democrats, is abortion, at least kind of act, people who are activists. In, a, in an odd way, it's not talked about enough. So different views as to what men and women should be with relation to each other, maybe that's the actual partisan split we're headed toward, and there's a kind of epiphenomenon of urban-rural, which in some ways correlates with that, but it's going to disappear. People are dying in those areas, they're leaving. Senate seats are not enough, actually, in the longer run.
1: So what's a book that you think is a good introduction idea most people have never considered?
2: what, What I recommend to people is to read books like on the history of the visual arts and try to make sense of styles in the visual arts. Pretty much every style from the past that has some notoriety has something to it. It's beautiful or interesting. It may not be your favorite, but to go back, try to make sense of that style, and it will be hard. And if you can do that for a style you don't immediately love. I don't mean read a book on Monet and look at water lily paintings. How
1: about brutalism? Have you ever? I have never understood that style. Yes,
2: to go back and look at brutalist buildings, pictures of them, read books on brutalism. I love brutalism. And if that can make sense to you, you then have an open carte blanche, like to every other idea out there. And my thinking on this question has really moved away from, well, here's some particular thing I'm more meta, maybe more like Robin Hanson. Here's the way to open all the doors for you. And I more and more think it's tough issues in aesthetics are what people should study, styles they don't love, learn how to love them. If you think it's crap, you're wrong.
1: What is one good book on a tough issue in aesthetics?
2: Uh, If you just put the word brutalism into Amazon and order, you know, half a dozen, which I've done, it's really reading the collectivity of them. It's not that there's any one book like, it starts, I know you all hate brutalism, but here's why it's great. And then there's seven propositions, like a Vox Voxplainer. It's the subtle thing. The books on it are all pretty sort of lateral or orthogonal to what you, someone aspiring to love, brutalism cares about. But that's partly why it's an interesting puzzle. And then, you know, Google to different brutalist things, Google Images, Wikipedia, just keep at it.
1: What's the last book you read and disagreed with strongly but would recommend people read?
2: Well, I mentioned the Bruno MacKay's book on Eurasia. I'm not sure if I disagree with it, but he thinks the future of our world will be determined by the sphere of interaction between Russia and Europe. I would say I'm not convinced. I wouldn't say I disagree strongly. We're in a, a, a slow time for, for books right now, I think.
1: But these can be a couple years
2: old. That I disagreed with strongly. I don't really disagree with books strongly.
1: Really? Um, so I'll give you an example. I just read a book that I disagree with strongly. Tell me. I read, um, I think it's called Why Liberalism Failed by Patrick Deneen. Yes. And I read that book. So we can I talk. En- I enjoyed the book quite a bit. And I felt it didn't in any way prove either that liberalism had failed or a lot of its central things is a very, I thought, interesting way of thinking a- about liberalism that managed to somehow exist separate from persuasion for me.
2: I agree the book didn't persuade me of anything.
1: Um, and I want to have them on this podcast. I think it'd be a good conversation. But uh, but but that was a book where I read it, enjoyed it, and could not recommend the argument, but do recommend the book.
2: I wanted more data in the book, and I wanted a clearer there there and like sharper cutting predictions and um, more internationally. So it just left me feeling like I had read only the article version and the book hadn't been written yet you know, David Brooks, Frost Duthit wrote it up is important. I was excited to read it. it. It was okay. Didn't do that much for me. And the go back and reread the classics is really where but, I'm at now. But give and me your I wanna... why
1: liberalism failed. I, 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 it I, hasn't I, failed. No, no, your version of that book. You, you recommend so many books. I'm going to get a couple book recommendations out of you. I'm not only getting meta.
2: Plato's Symposium. I re- reread not long ago. So there's a whole bunch of speeches about what love really is and they're embedded in the context of this drunken party where people are actually complacent and not getting up and doing anything at all. And the best speech is by Aristophanes and maybe the coherent way we talk about love and the erotic is in the context of fiction and when you try to say something coherent about it, you don't get anywhere. And the, the way in which Plato, through Socrates and the multiplicity of voices, the sophists, Protagoras, gives us deep truths that you can't boil down to a single point of view. I want to reread uh, more Plato, and I will recommend how Plato's appreci-
1: Symposium. Tell me how to appreciate Plato, because actually, I think that's a good, that's a good recommendation here, because I read a bunch of Plato in college and recognized the way in which I was reading it to understand the history and development of philosophical discourse, but also— the ideas were so peculiar and and given what we know now, so, you know, so off that I had trouble knowing what to take away from it. So if you're going back to reread it, tell me if I went back to reread it, what kind of perspective I should have going in to get a lot
2: out of it? I'm a big advocate of the idea of mentors. They can be temporary or, or partial, but you need a Plato mentor, someone who really knows it, who will, if only in a limited way, work through the book with you. Maybe just you meet you know, twice for a meal and talk about different sections. You need to read it about five times, get the edition with the notes by Seth Bernadetti, his essay at the end, and the essay by Bloom, and read that about five times and have a Plato mentor. Even if you decide you don't want to do that anymore, you'll have like, learned a thing that is quite significant above and beyond what you get from Symposium.
1: What are a few of your favorite biographies?
2: The Ulysses S. Grant biography, Chernow, is a good recent one. I'm reading that right now. I think it's excellent. Uh, his biographies in general are wonderful. Uh, the Walter Isaacson biography of Leonardo was very good. I don't know that I have favorites. I have favorites at any point in time. I love reading about Renaissance artists. Uh, there's a lot of good Mozart and Beethoven biographies I would steer people to. Einstein on Mozart. There's the big, long, like, 900-page one on Beethoven. I forget the author's name. It was Einstein on Mozart? Not the Einstein. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, Another guy, uh, yeah, like yeah. a writer name. Okay. Because uh, if Einstein wrote a biography on Mozart, I would really like to read that. <laughs> that would be interesting. <laughs> uh, Hunter Davies, his book on the Beatles, is very good. And The Revolution in Our Head uh, on the Beatles, I would recommend. So to study, like, small creative groups that work together— Warred against each other, split up, got back together. Those dynamics in the history of science, arts, music, I think it's an underrated way to like get at management topics and human nature.
1: What's a book you read that has helped you think more clearly? Like a book that, a good book on meta-thinking, on meta-rationality.
2: Well, other than Plato, but anything by John Stuart Mill, his autobiography, where he talks about how he changed his mind about different things. Uh, anything by David Hume. I think really smart classic literature is better than most nonfiction on this topic. How-to books are not mainly the way. Uh, just look at, like, the world's greatest two, three hundred novels, and whatever your your taste is going to be, study a batch of those. So you, you
1: and I talk about books fairly often, so you're in a deep classics period right now. You're talking a lot more about the classics than, than you normally do. What what classics is Classics
2: and books on tennis. I interviewed Martina Navratilova last night, and I spent uh, almost two months reading books on the history of tennis.
1: What was your favorite book from that? Andre Agassi's Autobiography. That's a great book.
2: And it's a good book about aspiration and self-management and education. Mm-hmm. But mostly you read books on tennis because of what the Hall gives you. Like most of them aren't that good. To read about Althea Gibson, first notable black female tennis player, her obstacles, her career. That was a very interesting track. Uh, but fitting together the pieces... Like, why was tennis a relatively socially progressive sport? How did it change in terms of commercialism in 1968, difference between men's and women's tennises? Uh, to what extent tennis is something truly cognitive and thus this kind of noble sport? You get all this out of the pile of books, but what I recommend any one of them to your readers know. So I'm really out of the, here's the one book you should read. It's why, about piles is it? of books. Why do you Pick th- your pile. Tennis, that was my pile but Here's the classics.
1: Here's why I'm curious that you do this. And one thing is nobody can go through as many books as you do as quickly. So, so having a pile of books is intimidating. Like I read a lot of books and, and the piles are, are intimidating. It's all I can do to keep up with books I need to read just for this podcast. And so I got to jump from thing to thing to thing. So but, but that's interesting to me that you're you seem very down on the idea of a book. But if you got to read piles, it's a very high barrier
2: to knowledge. Mostly, I'm only reading piles. I have my own podcast series, Conversations with Tyler, and I'm now doing a guest every two weeks. So it's like every two weeks I have a pile. And those are tough piles. You know, maybe a lot of people should read less. Like, why, why listen to what I think is the book you should read? But I would say at least think in terms of piles. Pick a pile you love and don't obsess over the individual books in it.
1: All right, here's my last one then. What is, and I prefer book recommendations, but you can give me a pile if you want, (laughs) that will make you feel better about the world right now?
2: The last book to read to feel better about the world is Steven Pinker's new book on the Enlightenment, which mostly I agree with. Most indicators of progress have been moving upwards, but there's something about the relentless banging of the drum in that book that I find very depressing. And the thing to read to feel better is actually to read someone who's, you know, a bit down, like read Nietzsche or someone who- Or why
1: liberalism failed actually made me feel a little bit better about the state of the world.
2: (laughs) Or read John Gray. So, you know, read the pessimistic books and you'll see their flaws. That's the way to feel better. You know, the Yasha Mank book on liberal democracy. There's the Southern new book, How Democracies Die. Read all those because you are not going to be convinced and you will walk away with a big smile on your face. Pinker, all those lines and cheerleading And there's something self-contradictory to feeling you have to cheerlead that much for progress that I find a little disturbing. Tyler Cowen, thank you very much. Thank you, Ezra. Thank you to Tyler for
1: being on the show. Thank you to Jillian Weinberger, my producer, as always, Ezra Klein shows the Vox Media Podcast Network production, and we will be back next week.